So you're wondering what to do with your marital home. Understandably, you don't want to disrupt the kid's routine. You want something to at least feel like it's staying the same. So you're considering keeping the marital home. And you may have heard that in order to do this, your only option is to buy out your soon-to-be ex for their half of the equity and refinance the entire mortgage amount into your name alone. But did you know that there are actually other options where you may, in fact, be able to keep that low interest rate you probably have? This is Divorced and Determined AF, the show that empowers women to make aligned decisions before, during, and beyond divorce. My name is Jamie Milam, and I am determined to help you live the life that you desire and deserve by making informed decisions and taking aligned action through the power of internal and external awareness. Many women wonder what options we have with our mortgage or our equity that can help us stay in the home, how do we know if it's right for us, and what do we need to do to ensure that it gets done properly? Well, joining me today is Pam Abereshed, a certified divorce lending professional. What is that exactly? Well, she's a mortgage loan originator, but one who has special advanced training and experience working with those who are going through a divorce. So she understands the nuances of navigating this already overwhelming process and helps you identify what options are actually available to you, preferably before you even meet with your attorney so that you know what options you want to strive for in negotiations. In this episode, we're going to not only educate you on some of the options that may be available to you and prepare you for the elements that need to be considered during the divorce negotiation, but also what needs to happen even beyond the finalized divorce decree to ensure a successful strategy empowering you to make an informed decision about staying in the home. But before we get started, ladies, let me remind you that we've designed a space to help you navigate all sorts of aspects that divorce encompasses. So stay tuned to the end of the episode to learn how you can access these free resources. Now, let's get started. Divorce is an overwhelming process that most of us did not know how to navigate until we were in the thick of it, which can cost us a lot more time, money, and energy than necessary. Divorced and Determined AF hopes to change that. I'm your host, Jamie Milam. I'm a realtor and a certified divorce specialist who not only works with divorcing couples when selling their home, but I am also divorced and I know firsthand how much having thorough resources would positively impact women for years to come. I'm bringing together fellow divorcees and experts working in the field to talk about this private taboo topic, all with the goal to help you feel prepared, educated, assured, confident, and empowered to make informed decisions related to your divorce journey. So whether you're just now considering a divorce, in the midst of it, or are now navigating a new norm and are determined AF to do it your way, this is your safe space. You deserve it. Oh, Pam, I'm so excited that you're here with us today because when I sat down with you the first time, Pam, you blew my mind with something that we discussed in our conversation. And I've been in the industry for half a decade. So I immediately recognized that if I didn't know this one thing in our industry, then there are several homeowners that don't know this, as well as other professionals. So that's kind of what I want to dive into. When folks are going through divorce, they're usually told one of two things. You have to have the money to buy out your soon-to-be ex for their equity amount up front if you want to stay, or you have to sell the house. 
But that's not exactly true, is it, Pam? No, it's not. I <laughs> know, uh, right? Uh, we may, in fact, actually have some additional options available to us, including some strategic ways that we can utilize our existing mortgage and our equity. So the first one, which, you know, kind of baffles me, but I do understand that it might be best for some folks is keeping the house and keeping their spouse on the loan. I'm a little confused by that one just because I have control issues probably, but can we start with that? How often have you experienced that? How is that structured? What are the pros and cons to that? Yeah, great question. So no, it's not usually the most ideal situation, but I do see people who are in a pretty amicable divorce and they still want to be friends. They can be on the same terms. This is not a good idea for people who hate each other and don't want anything ever to do again with the other one in their future. But if you guys can be amicable and if you have a good trust in the payments being made, this is something that can be done. So essentially, let's say one spouse, I'm going to use husband and wife here. So let's say the wife is going to stay in the house with the kids because that's the most common situation. She stays in the house and then the husband wants to go off and buy another home. The wife can leave everything as is with the husband on the mortgage, the husband on the deed, and still make sure those mortgage payments are made. And then the husband will be able to still buy another house without having that mortgage payment counted against him. The reason for that is if there is a legal document awarding the home to one spouse, we as mortgage lenders can then exclude that debt from the debt to income ratios. So Wife gets to keep the house. She can keep paying the mortgage and the husband can go buy a house because we can show that the home was awarded to his wife in the divorce decree. So pros are you get to keep your current monthly payment. You can keep the low interest rate that you probably have. You don't have to go through a refinance or any of that. The cons would be if the husband is not making sure the payments are made and the wife who stayed in the home stops making her payments or something happens to her job or whatever, if she goes into foreclosure, that will affect the husband. So that's the downside. And that's why I was saying you need to trust that the other person is going to make their payments because there's a chance that you could be put in trouble. But if you can both make sure the payments are made and make sure it's in good standing, it is good for you. Late mortgage payments, missed payments, foreclosures, anything like that would still count against both parties. Okay, so that's where I thought whenever you said, oh, we can exclude that first mortgage, that first property that wife is staying in, we could exclude it from the DTI. That was going to be my next question is, well, what happens if it goes into foreclosure? Because what I talked about with our listeners last week is just because you remove somebody from the title and the deed doesn't mean that we're automatically removing them from the mortgage. And that can become problematic in the event that, let's say, wife who decides to stay in the home is the primary responsible party for making the payments and she defaults on the loan and it goes into foreclosure, well, husband technically is still legally and financially responsible for this home. His credit could be damaged right. as well. Or if right. she's relying on him to make those payments on the family home, plus he's got to live somewhere. He's paying somewhere, rent or mortgage. Um, mm -hmm. And he can't do that job, you know, whatever. Uh, same issue. She's going to face that, right? So there are definitely things to think about long term. Um, yeah. Kudos to anybody who this is a great option for. That would not have been me. I would not have felt comfortable with that. But 
More commonly known would be to refinance it in our own name, to do a cash out refi, or even maybe if the home is paid off, you might incorporate a HELOC to handle the buyout aspect. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know about qualifications for these options if we're trying to manage moving the mortgage into our own name? What do we need to know about that for the party that's wanting to stay in the home? So if you can afford it on your own, if you are employed and have been employed throughout the marriage and nothing is changing in that regard, then we would just basically qualify you just like any other mortgage. We'll use your regular income, look at your monthly debts and determine if you qualify that way. If you have been a stay-at-home spouse and are going back into the workforce, we will need to reestablish your employment history. So depending on what you qualify for, what loan program you qualify for, we might need maybe a month. We might need six months. It just depends. Or if you're self-employed, we would need two years. So that could be a big wrecker in things too. But if you are returning to the workforce, you may need a little bit of time before you can qualify. The biggest hurdle that we see with divorces is alimony and child support. So if you are somebody who's going to be receiving alimony and or child support, you need to have a six-month proof that you have received that money on time and in full. So if your alimony obligation is $5,000 a month and you're getting $2,000 a month, we can't even count that $2,000 a month. The alimony has to be court-ordered and on a document that is signed and agreed to. It's got to be a legitimate thing. If you have a spouse who's just being nice and paying you money, that's lovely for you. But for mortgages, doesn't mean anything. So you have to have a written document that says how much money you're supposed to get. And we have to be able to show for six months preceding your application that you have received that money on time and in full. We have made it work before. If you're supposed to get five grand a month and you get 2,500 every two weeks, that's fine. You're getting your full payment. As long as you're receiving it in full, and it's consistent, that's what we care about. I was just talking to a lady the other day who is supposed to get eight grand a month and she's been getting $2,000 or $4,000 or 3,000 and it's never been the full 8,000. While she's getting something from her ex, we can't use that because it's literally nothing even close to what she's supposed to be using. So if you're going to be relying on alimony or child support, that six months history is super important. On top of a six-month history of receiving it, you also have to receive that income for three years after you get the house. So if you have a three-year alimony term, that's great, but we can't use it for a mortgage because you have to have six months proof that you have received the money, and then you have to have 36 months, three years after you get the house of continuation. Same thing with child support. If you have a 16-year-old, again, great that you're receiving child support, but that income is not going to continue for three years because it stops at age 18. So bullet point, six months history of receiving it every single month and then three-year continuation. So really, if you can have four years, that's the ideal kind of shortest term. And when you say four years, just to clarify for the listeners, so six months prior to your application, if your application is intended to rely on that income to help you qualify, then you have to have already had 
six full months of documented child support payments made in full before the application or else you won't be able to count that income. And then the other part of that time frame she's saying is that it must show that the child support is intended to continue for another three years beyond mm-hmm. that time. The other aspect that she was saying was that if you're not counting on child support or alimony, then you're going to have to qualify on your own at whatever the current interest rates are. Your interest rate does not transfer. You will have to qualify based on your individual credit score, and you're going to have to qualify on your individual debt-to-income ratios. So just make note of that. And I think it's a really important factor. It happens way more often than people might think, Pam. I remember when I first got into the real estate industry, one of my first listings, her home was listed. It had been listed with two other agents previously. They expired off the market, meaning they didn't sell with their agents. And when I interviewed to list the home for the third time, for her anyways, I asked her where she was going to be moving to once her home sold. She said, oh, I hadn't figured that part out yet. You know, I stopped kind of looking since I... Haven't sold it yet. I said, okay, have you been qualified um, with a lender yet? She said, no, no. So I put her in touch with somebody. Come to find out, she's stay-at-home mom, no job. All of her income was being delivered to her under the table via Venmo from her child's father, uh, which was fantastic. And it had been consistent. However, there was no documented order for this. There was no documented agreement. And it wasn't being labeled as such for child support. And so what do you know? She couldn't qualify. And I will never forget her saying to me, why didn't the other agents ask me this? You know, like I would have sold my house and I wouldn't have been able to buy another home. I wouldn't have been able to transition the way that I wanted to. And why didn't they tell me about this child support thing? And I said, well, my question really is why didn't they make sure that you were pre-approved to be able to purchase something else? You know, so I was stunned. And it just further validated that sometimes our timing does happen for a specific reason, right? Maybe her home didn't sell for those two different listing periods because she wasn't being properly educated. So yeah, it definitely happens, you guys. And that's a super common thing that I run into too, not necessarily on the real estate agent side, but the divorce attorney says, you know, the wife is going to keep the house and she has to refinance him off six months from now at the latest. Well, that hasn't given us our six months time frame to even receive child support and alimony. And if that's her only income source, we're in a position where we can't get it done by the date in the separation agreement. So there's so much due diligence that needs to happen before that separation agreement is signed. And that's why we're it's awesome we're doing this because this is incredibly useful information for somebody who is going through the separation process and the equitable distribution and all that good stuff. It's not uncommon for someone to try to do something or be tied down, like selling their house, not knowing that they can't buy another one with the way things are. It's super important. Do your due diligence. Talk to somebody in lending or real estate before you make these commitments on your separation agreement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of even the selling aspect, right? Last week, I shared with our listeners how equity is determined and what that means in terms of how it might be divided, whether it's a community property state or like the Carolinas, an equitable distribution state. And so I'm going to kind of carry over the same property scenario that I had last week so that I can keep this example going. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So let's say that you own a home that is now worth 500000 Any and all of the lien balances on that property that remain total 200000 So that means that we have three hundred k in equity, uh, which means each partner now basically has rights to $150,000. So whichever partner is going to stay, there is a $150,000 buyout to the other partner if they want to stay. So let's assume that we we don't have enough joint assets to trade for the equity amount or we've already determined how that's going to be done and therefore we need to split this equity equally. That's how we're coming up with the $150,000 buyout. So let's talk now about what are these options to fund that buyout, Pam? So one option would be a refinance. We're recording this in 2024 and rates are around eight. And 8% is a lot more than a 2 or 3% mortgage rate. So a lot of people coming to me right now don't want to refinance. So the other option would be to get a home equity line of credit. And that is giving you access to the $300,000 equity that you just mentioned in your example. So a home equity line is the best option if you can leave your mortgage as it is and then just get the home equity line. The other option would be to do a refinance where you are taking the current mortgage and rolling it in with that $150,000 of equity that you have to pay to your departing spouse. And then you would have all of that rolled into one mortgage. But depending on what the housing market is doing, that may be the more desirable option or it may be the less desirable option. Right now, it's less desirable because you're going into way higher interest rate. People would rather have a HELOC at a higher rate and leave their mortgage the same. But in 2020 and 2021, when rates were super low, all I was doing was refinances for the situation. So it really depends on what market you're in. Yes, there's a couple different terms here. There's the refinance, which just means that you are refinancing the loan, taking it out of both spouses' names and moving it into just your name if you're staying in the property for the full balance of the current mortgage. The other aspect here is a cash out refinance. So in this example, what Pam is saying is you would discuss with her and her team to determine your ability to qualify for a new mortgage for a total of $350,000, which that's including the 200K that's on the balance of the mortgage that's currently in place, plus pulling out the $150,000 cash to complete that buyout to pay off your soon-to-be ex in a lump sum. So that's assuming that you don't get to do a buyout over time. Now, if your ex is saying, yep, I'll take a buyout in monthly payments over a period of time, then a refinance to just transfer the mortgage into your name would be the right scenario there. It's going to put you into today's interest rates. You're going to have to, again, qualify with your debt to income, your credit score, et cetera. But the cash out refi is going to encompass the full mortgage balance plus the cash out buyout amount, correct? Right. Okay. So here's a question I have for you. If you have to do a buyout, let's just say that X is okay with you doing a buyout over time. Mm -hmm. And so we'll take, you know what, we'll do my example. All right. So I have to refinance the house in my name completely for the current mortgage balance. And I'm going to have to pay out $750 each month. That's obviously in our agreement. Will that buyout monthly payment 
now count against my debt to income ratio to qualify for the refinance. Yeah. I mean, essentially that's alimony. Even if you call it something else, that's that's the way we would look at it as an alimony. And then it depends on how long you'll be paying that. Is it for a year? Is it for 10 years? That will also play into things. Oh, well, can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, not necessarily from a mortgage qualification, but if I saw that and saw that you were refinancing anyway, and you had to pay $750 a month for 10 years, that's a lot of money. So how much can we take out with the mortgage so that you have cash sitting there that you can disperse? Will it make sense to do that? And that's the kind of thing that a CDLP like me will look at. You know, are you, if you have to pay $750 a month, you probably could put that in your mortgage and be spending less out of pocket per month. You know, if you roll it into a 30-year loan, maybe it costs you $200 extra on your mortgage instead of $750 extra each month. And then at that point, do you do a lump sum to your departing spouse or do you keep just paying your $750, but you have this pot of money sitting there so you're not paying out of your own income? If you have an obligation for a year, and you're coming to me and you have five months left, we can exclude that because it would be considered an installment debt. And anything with 10 months or less remaining, we can exclude. So if it is a pretty short-term repayment, then we can exclude that and you wouldn't have to count it against you. But 10 years, you got that for a while. You guys, I love these conversations because I am certainly not the expert in everything, but I am quite the planner. And there's something that Pam just said to you guys. That I'm not sure if you've picked up on. So if you have to make this buyout payment for years to come, there's a couple of facets that come into play. And I'll give you my perspective. My facet was, if I have three years to pay this out, then why would I want to roll that in to my refinance amount, even at a higher interest rate when I'm at 0% interest with him? Okay. However, there's a facet that I want to introduce here. If it were, let's say, for a five-year period or whatever, and you might be like me to say, well, the chance that I'm probably going to sell the house before five years is probably pretty high. So I'll just take care of it whenever I sell the house. Well, we don't know where the market's going to be. But additionally, like she said, you might want to roll it in if it is longer than a couple of years because we don't know what the future holds. So here's my question that I kind of want to know your take on too, Pam. When it comes to thinking about how much we should rely on, A, being able to receive the payments, let's say we're the person who wants to move out and the spouse is making buyout payments to us. Or on the flip side, we just discussed that maybe you keep him on the mortgage and they're making payments on the property right? So that you can stay in it. The kids can mm -hmm. stay in it, the interest rate and everything. You know, given that there's always a possibility that someone loses their job or decides mm -hmm. to withhold payments out of spite, there might come a time where it is potentially better for your peace of mind to roll in this amount and maybe pay them out in a lump sum. Because if you are uncertain about how you're going to be with your job, down the road and maybe even as self-employed like I am, then it might be a peace of mind to just take care of it all at once 
and not have to be in contempt of court and potential default on your mortgage, right? Right. But also same thing, do we really want to rely on their payments coming to us? Any thoughts on that and what you've experienced? So relying on someone paying you, that's why we have that six-month rule to make sure that whoever is supposed to be paying isn't a deadbeat. I hate to use that term, but they could be a deadbeat who's like, well, I don't have to pay this, so I'm not going to. Um, So six months, no, doesn't tell you what the rest of your life, if you're getting alimony for the next 30 years, no, that six months is nothing compared to 30 years. But that's where you have to use your best judgment of the character of the person Mm -hmm. that you are divorcing. Because sometimes people are like, oh, I trust this person to pay me. They've been super respectful. They're respecting all my wishes and whatever, if it's amicable or even if it's not, you know, if you married a good person who's going to honor their commitments. And sometimes there are people who their spouse went on like a midlife crisis of a spending spree and liquidated all kinds of assets and, you know, did really irresponsible things. If that's who you married, then go for the lump sum and don't do the monthly payout. Because if you don't get the lump sum now, you may not ever get it. So I mean, but even if you know that somebody has really good intentions, life happens, you guys. Like mm-hmm. accidents happen, right? You know, what if they become in a position where they can't work for a period of time or there's a big layoff? None of us saw COVID happening, right? How many people mm-hmm. lost their jobs then? So there's lots of different aspects. But again, I'm glad that you point out that we do have to look inward and say, what do we feel most comfortable with? What makes Mm -hmm. us feel aligned? And yes, it might feel nice to be amicable, especially if we're the ones leaving the home and are expecting a buyout. It might feel nice and easy to come to a settlement, like let's do a buyout over time. But Mm -hmm. can we restructure that? Can we get a lump sum buyout of some degree and then buy out over time? But again, what's going to bring you longer term peace, right? Right. But moving into another aspect, because you've already brought up HELOC as an Mm -hmm. aspect to potentially do a buyout. But circling back to the top of this episode, when we first sat down, I knew about these options for cash out refi, refinance, but you blew my mind with a little known fact about this last option. Um, You want to share that with us? Yeah. Are you talking about loan assumptions? (laughs) I am. I am. (laughs) So loan assumptions are super cool. They aren't a guarantee, but anybody I ever talked to who is wanting to stay in the marital home, their first homework assignment before we get into really much detail is call your loan servicer and see if you can assume the loan. So VA loans and FHA loans are just by their very nature are assumable. So whether you're going through a divorce or selling your house on the open market, somebody can assume that mortgage if your loan is through VA or FHA. That means that someone can take over the existing mortgage at the current principal balance and the current interest rate, everything. They basically pick up the loan from your name and put it in the buyer's name. Or if you are in a divorcing situation, they'll just put it in your name. Now, there's some stipulations with those products, though, right? Like I know with like the VA, that means that whoever the initial VA borrower was, they won't get their eligibility benefit until that loan has been repaid. I think that's the biggest one, which is helpful Mm -hmm. if you're selling VA to VA. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's some stipulations around the down payments. But what are the stipulations with like FHA? So before I go to FHA, a VA loan is 
assumable by a non-veteran, which a lot of sure. people don't know. So if you're taking over a loan from somebody who is a veteran, you do not have to be a veteran, which is really nice to know in a spousal situation. If you're going through a divorce and let's say the husband was a veteran and the wife wants to keep the house, wife does not have to be a veteran to take over that VA loan. And the eligibility is used up. But in most cases, the veteran who took out that loan still has existing eligibility that they can go and buy themselves a house with all of the same benefits of a VA loan. So if you're in that situation and your spouse is leaving and they're the veteran, they can talk to a lender and see if they have any VA eligibility to still be able to qualify for a VA loan with the existing loan still counting against them. The other thing too, not to go down a total rabbit hole here, but if you are the veteran leaving the home, if you have a ton of your eligibility tied up to the marital home and your spouse will be assuming that loan, you can use that as a negotiating factor because maybe so much of your eligibility is tied up in your current home that maybe you have to put down a 5% down payment. Maybe that's something that your spouse will have to buy you out or give you that 5% down payment out of your assets to compensate for the 5% down payment that you would have to have. Whereas if you didn't let them assume that loan and take your eligibility, you wouldn't have to put a down payment. Yeah. And this works really well if like you are the veteran who wants to stay in the property, but you're both on the mortgage. Now you just assume that mortgage at all of the current, you're basically just taking the spouse off. It's fantastic option that way too. Um, What about FHA? So FHA, really, uh, there's no unique stuff with it. If you are assuming the loan, then you're just taking over the existing mortgage and taking your spouse off. You will have to qualify to do that. They're going to look at your debt to income ratios and credit score and all of that stuff and make sure that you are still a good risk by yourself rather than as joint credit. But by the very nature of these loans, FHA and VA are both assumable. So there's not this big gray cloud of questioning above your head if you can assume it or not. The bigger thing that most people don't know is conventional land can be assumed as well in the situation of a divorce. So again, assumption means that you are taking over the current mortgage at the current rate. If you have to do a buyout, you cannot roll that buyout into the assumption. So in your previous example, you were saying they owe 200,000 and then there's 300 in equity. So if you owe 200,000, you would be assuming the mortgage for 200,000 at at your current interest rate. Yeah, I was going to say at let's say a 3% interest rate. And then you'd have to figure out the other $150,000. Are you going to get a home equity line for that? Do you have assets that you're not having to give to your spouse? Maybe you do 150 that way out of assets instead of taking out of that house. So those are things that we'll look at. But if you want to assume a loan on the house that you're awarded, you need to call your loan servicer. You don't call your loan officer, the person who helped you get the mortgage. You call the servicer, whoever you're writing your checks to every month, and tell them, I am being awarded my home in my divorce. Will you allow assumption of this loan? If you ask, is my loan assumable, and you have a conventional loan, they're going to say no. It is totally on a case-by-case, servicer-by-servicer basis. So there is no guarantee that you just automatically get to assume the mortgage, but it is a free phone call for you to make and see if that's an option before you just jump down the rabbit hole of refinancing. Because 
nobody really wants to go from a 3% to an 8% rate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you have a conventional loan that was already at one of those lower interest rates, it only makes sense to assume that keeping that interest rate and then if your only option for buyout is to do a HELOC, now you're only doing a portion of that $350,000 at the higher interest rate. So it totally right. makes sense there. Really quick, when it comes to conventional loan assumption, there's a couple of different things that they would need to know about that, right? There's two different ways they can go about that. Yes. And this, again, goes back to what does your servicer allow? But if you call your loan servicer and they say that you can assume the loan, there are two types of assumptions that could occur. One is a simple assumption where essentially both you and your spouse are still tied to the loan. So this is not going to come off of your spouse's credit. So it will still show up, but you are the one who is legally responsible for making that payment now. So it doesn't completely remove your spouse, but their legal responsibility for making that payment is no longer there. The other option is a qualified assumption. This is the one that more people are doing. I honestly don't think I've seen a simple assumption done, but a qualified assumption is they're going to basically put you through the mortgage qualification process. They're going to get your pay stubs and your bank statements and your assets and your taxes, I mean. So they're going to review everything and see if you qualify for the existing mortgage payment. And then from there, if they feel like you're a good risk, they will allow the assumption. What if my name's not on the mortgage currently? Can I still potentially assume the loan if the servicer, if they allow that? You should be able to, if you are married to the person who is on the mortgage, you should be able to assume that loan in the divorcing situation. You can't just go up to, again, this is all about divorce. We're not talking like an FHA loan. You can go up to somebody's door and say, hey, I want to assume your loan. And if they have FHA, you can do it. But in the case of a conventional loan, if you are going through a divorce, that's when you can look into the assumption. Okay. Okay. I mean, this is why it's important to have these conversations with real estate professionals, lending professionals, real estate agents in advance of drafting any agreement. So let's say then that we're fortunate enough to be able to choose one of these options to stay in the home. Aside from the fact that we do need documented income, are there any other considerations that you have ran into that after the fact, we're like, oof, I wish I would have thought about that when I came to now owning all of this on my own. Right. If you're doing the qualified assumption and you have not been working or you're going to qualify for that just off of alimony, just off of child support, no employment, then you need to take the stuff that we talked about at the beginning of the episode into consideration. So you need to have that six months proof of receipt before you go and try to do the assumption. If you are trying to go back to work, make sure you have gone back to work and started that employment before you go and try to do the assumption. You can always call if you're served papers right this second saying, you know, hey, I want to get a divorce. You can call your loan servicer and ask the hypothetical question, but you want to do as much homework as you can with your loan servicer to see what they would require when the time does come for you to do the assumption. Because if you're awarded the home in the divorce and you can't do the assumption, then you have to make sure you can refinance the home out of your spouse's name and into yours or else you're going to lose the house. That's usually how that works in the separation agreements. Yeah, you guys, we can't really 
understate the importance of having these conversations really early on. And if you asked any professional that works in the divorce space, well, when should I start meeting with you? When do I need to have a conversation with you? I can guarantee you everybody's going to say, well, as soon as possible. Okay, well, what does that actually mean? Let me give you guys a real life scenario that Pam and I are working on currently right now so that you can see what this looks like in real time. We are mutually working with a divorcing client right now who would like to keep her home if possible. She's been in it for 12 years. They're sitting at a interest rate that's less than 3%. Very little is left on the mortgage, which means that there is quite a bit of equity. And she would like to be proactive in knowing, A, is it possible to keep the house? What are my options? And B, I want to keep my kids in the same school and I, I really want to try to stay in the same area if I can't keep the house. So what does that look like? Is that even a possibility? Because she knows that the more proactive she is being, that's going to help her in her negotiation process during mediation. So what we are doing right now is saying, okay, well, let's look at what home prices look like in your area now to keep your kids in the same school at today's current home prices and today's current interest rates. Let's go ahead and run an application to see, can you even qualify for that? Now, you guys, I have to say here, we all know that we're going to have to change up our lifestyles some when we go from two incomes to one. And so can she qualify for a new home purchase with today's interest rate where the home prices are? If that's an option for her, then we kind of know working backwards from there that she could probably also then qualify for either a cash out refi or if her loan servicer allows her to assume the loan, then she can do that and then qualify for a HELOC. So basically qualifying her for a new purchase today's rate tells us, okay, then you can probably go ahead and qualify for these other aspects. We just now need to know, can you assume your loan? But it also tells her what would that monthly payment look like? Is it actually doable? You might be able to qualify for it on paper, but is that a lifestyle that you're going to want to live? So now she knows how much she wants to push to stay in the home because if the loan servicer says she cannot assume it, now she has to consider my payment of a cash out refi or my payment of a new home purchase. And if those things aren't really what I want to do, then maybe I need to cash out on my equity as well and we sell the property. And so by having these conversations, by the way, we informed her of this first and she took the conversation to her attorney who then told her, oh yeah, I think you should talk with a real estate agent then. And so what I had done was figured out what her potential equity was, what that buyout amount was. I gave that buyout amount to Pam to say, here's her half. Let's look at it worst case scenario so that she can use worst case scenario of buyout amount for a down payment. And then worst case scenario, if it sold for top price and she had to buy out her ex at top price. Now, what is her HELOC payment or her cash out refi? So we are able to strategize based on real numbers. But the fascinating piece there is her attorney said, oh, yeah, I do think maybe you should talk to them. Oh, really? You think so? Before you draft up any documentation? Oh, hmm, okay. You guys, this is a holistic picture. And this is why this is a conversation that needs to be had. If you are a homeowner and you're looking at moving or buying or 
even just staying in the property. You have to be speaking with all these different professionals well in advance. It's not just an attorney conversation. So yeah. And I, I say this not to bash attorneys whatsoever um, because they do have a very important role in this process. But attorneys have, I always say, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of books of law that they have to memorize. We have ridiculous tests that you and I both had to take to become a real estate agent, to become a lender. And those rules are constantly changing. So for an attorney to have to memorize real estate law or lending guidelines, or what does a client have to do to qualify for a mortgage when it comes to alimony? Like there are some general rules of thumb that they should know. The six months receipt, 36 months of continuation. But there are so many things that attorneys just don't know. And it's not their fault. Like, yeah, it would be lovely if they knew everything, but they don't know all of these pieces. So that's why it's so important to have someone like Jamie who knows the real estate side, somebody like me who knows the lending side, who can give you the advice you need, even if we're not helping you right this second. Jamie's not listing your house right now. I'm not getting you a mortgage right now, but we are giving you the information you need to make sure that you are putting your best foot forward when you're going into mediation, when you sign that separation agreement and then go into the rest of your life, your new future. Yeah, because you guys, we all are educated in our sector. An attorney cannot look at all of that stuff and know if you're going to qualify based on the lending requirements for that particular lender. Here's the other example to this is that the attorneys had ordered an appraisal. And I will tell you right now, I do not agree with the appraisal. I've looked at it. I think that they pulled the best of the best comps, which they're not actual comparables to the condition of this property. I have argument to say that the value that is listed on that appraisal is actually significantly higher than what the buyer market would actually bring. So having more than one look at something could end up saving you money on the buyout. An attorney is not the one studying the market. They don't look at the cops. And yes, they can order an appraisal. But again, in this particular situation, I've seen the appraisal that was ordered and as hands-on in the marketplace. I don't agree with that. We know how to study them. We know how to read them and we know how to rebuttal them when necessary. And this is one of those instances. And so again, like Pam said, it's not like I'm coming in and saying, let me figure out what your home value is so we can list it next week. Pam is saying, hey, if you can do a loan assumption, she has nothing to do with that. That's between the homeowner and their current loan servicer. But if we can serve you in any sort of way to help you with the best strategy that's right for you in the long run, that's our goal here, right? Because we don't know exactly which strategy is right for you until we start creating some awareness around what the options are and then until you start having those conversations so that we can navigate that with you. So, Pam. What a great conversation. We could talk about it for hours, I know. <laughs> we could. <laughs> Absolutely. I really appreciate you being here. Now, thank you so much for having me on here. I'm super excited that you are sharing all of this priceless information. It's so valuable. And I love that you're creating a platform for people like me to share it and give information to the people who need it. Wow. I'll tell you, ladies, when Pam told me that a conventional mortgage might be assumable within a divorce, my mind was blown and I am in the industry. What an amazing option to have alongside a traditional refinance or a cash out refi. I mean, how helpful is that to know the actual elements and timelines that need to be incorporated into your separation agreement 
to best set you up for success. With this information, you can now begin to explore which of these options can actually be applied to your situation and feel a bit more prepared when you're strategizing with your attorney, but also empowered to know in advance what's possible so that you can make informed decisions that you'll feel most comfortable negotiating for. As a reminder, Pam can actually consult with you regardless the state in the U.S. that you are in. Her consultation link is posted down in the show notes. And if you're looking for a multitude of divorce-related resources, then visit peaceofminddivorce.info now so that you can access our full resource library that is constantly growing. All you have to do is go to peaceofminddivorce.info and sign up for free today.